Vaccine. I'm Steve, and uh, joining me this week, fuck you, Adam Myros. Hey, hey, no, come on. Uh, this this is better than last week, right? Yeah, uh, wait, I think last week was your fault, possibly, and, and definitely the week before and the week before that. I, you got a real streak going here, buddy. Uh, last week was not my fault. This is I'm, my I'm... fault. I take full <laughs> responsibility for this. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm blaming all the woes of the last month on you. As soon as we pivot away from like incredible Asian genre cinema it, it, back into the toilet, it's it's all your fault. Uh, also joining us this week, uh, Jake. Jake, how you doing? Oh, I'm not too great, Steve. I'm just I'm devastated that Jim Brewer just keeps canceling shows. Oh I'm never going to see him. Yeah, it's you know truly at the vanguard of contemporary stand-up comedy jim brewer you think he still does the goat boy i mean he, all, uh, all he's gonna have left is the vanguard he's gonna be doing shows in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> uh i think yeah he's probably doing he's got to be doing goat boy what, what are his other bits like what else does he have other than goat boy just does a lot of anti-vax stuff uh. like you, you can go to his instagram any given pick of the day is a 20 minute rant about the COVID and the vaccine and he's just really he's got those dumb stoner eyes and he's just really over it <laughs> but uh he thinks it's all bullshit well I don't know how, how that makes for much of a, a stand-up set but maybe I'm just not uh, as imaginative as Jim Brewer maybe there can be like a whole tour of like failed SNL guys who have never been funny and yet sustained careers so we can get Rob Schneider back in the fold. What do you think? <laughs> I, I don't, what constitutes failed SNL guys? These people are all fucking rolling in money. That's true. Or as like Ellen Cleghorn or something, you're probably not as rich as Jim Brewer. Uh, I guess I we're going to have to cross off Horatio's hands. I can't wait for the Victoria Jackson comeback tour. Oh, she'd be great too. So you got, yeah, you got Victoria Jackson, you got Rob Schneider, now you got Jim Brewer. That's, that's, a perfect lineup right there. Is Paul is Paul Schaefer up to anything? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the original original kings of comedy right there. That's that's oh. all you need. Piscopo, uh, you could throw him in there. I'm sure he's got some things to say. Yeah. Oh, what about uh uh oh god, what's his face? Uh fucking Monday Night Football, Dennis Miller. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Dennis Miller's been working out bits on Twitter for like five years now, and they're all pretty great. I, I had to I had to work a, a comedy show a couple nights ago, and uh, it, it was it was a similar crowd. A lot of like fifty five year old guys in affliction t shirts uh, who have you know opinions on on why Aaron Rodgers is a bitch stuff like that, and. Uh, I, I kind of like snuck away and I poked my head in to see how this guy was doing. And he did a bit on a uh, ball sticking to your leg. So the, the joke was fellas, does it ever get hot and your balls stick to your leg and you got to stand like this. And then he put like one of his legs on top of the, the monitor speaker and then everybody laughed really hard. So uh, really original material. And then <laughs> he, did a whole like 30 minutes of his set. And, and I had gone back in, but I could just hear it uh, because it was so fucking loud, but he was just playing slow jam music. And he was just like, Latino guys like slow jams like this. And he played some song and he's like, a black guys like this one. He played Brian McKnight and everybody's just like, yeah. And they're singing along. So imagine if, you're a comedian with like a book deal and millions of dollars and multiple Netflix stand-up specials. And like your best material is my balls are stuck to my leg. And isn't it funny when black people sing a song? I mean, he prayed that does set one off. It's newly relevant because you know, your balls are going to stick to your legs when they're impotent and swollen by the vaccine. Oh, that's right, man. Fucking Nicki Minaj, her buddy <laughs> that got, they got the vaccine. His fucking balls blew up. <laughs> 
It didn't happen to me because I've, I've had the biggest nuts around for as long <laughs> as I can remember. I love take, taking uh, medical advice from somebody who suggests that I pray on something, you know? That's mm -hmm. always a good sign, too. Yeah, I'd agree. All right, well, I guess we're going to have to talk about the fucking movies that Myros made us watch. <laughs> That's kind of the the premise that we've, we've promised our audience, more or less. Uh, all right, so we're talking about Fear Street this week. And uh, you probably recognize Fear Street because you turned on Netflix and you saw it pop up and you're like, Fear Street, huh? Wasn't that a, a kid's book series? And you would be correct. Anyone read these Fear Streets, by the way? Well, it, it's interesting no. you say that. Uh, I, I read a couple of them, but I was more of a Goosebumps kid. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fear Street actually started in 1989, which was before Goosebumps. So it predates Goosebumps. And uh, it was kind of like the first real R.L. Stein horror series. Goosebumps was more for like elementary, late elementary into middle school age kids. And Fear Street was supposed to be for high school kids. But I think what a lot of kids did, at least this is what I did, I did read a little bit of Fear Street, but I think I jumped from like scary stories to tell in the dark to goosebumps. I read a couple of Fear Streets, but like whatever. But then I just went straight into the Stephen King. You just get into the hardcore shit. Yeah, yeah you same skip here. the PG thirteen. You go yeah. straight into the hard R. See, I feel like that. Oddly enough, uh, Fear Street kind of. I feel like it was more geared toward like. Uh, preteen girls like it was like a babysitter's club graduation thing like the the boys were more into the monster muck goosebumps nonsense and and the girls were more into the the sort of stabby uh i don't know mm -hmm. maybe i'm uh, maybe it's a misconception but that's just how it always felt in my in my library we'll say yeah well it's it's a little bit different than goosebumps because uh like you said goosebumps there wasn't a lot of explicit violence and gore uh, also, it tended to focus on just kind of like vague supernatural elements and then kind of goopy, gross out shit, uh, which is cool when you're like a boy who's like eight years old, nine years old. Sure. Uh, whereas Fear Street, as you pointed out, it was it was some monstery stuff, but also a, a lot of like murder mystery slashery type things. So I, I think in addition to being for older kids, it, it may have had more cross gender appeal. I, I don't know. Uh, I've never had a, I've never had a conversation with a woman before, so I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, know fair anything enough. about that. I, I was curious as to if anyone had read them, because I, I wonder if it had any of this sort of horse shit in it, this sort well, of like this, uh, <laughs> backstory of shady side and whatever. Funny you should ask. So let me take you on a journey and we will get to Shady Side. Uh, so th these books did take place in a broader universe. They did take place in the town of Shady Side. And the lore that is presented in the film series is actual canon. So this is all this is all huh. part of the world. Uh, it's stupid as fuck. Well, it's our early for twelve-year-olds, you know. But, you know. <laughs> um, so, Fear Street and Goosebumps. Another thing you may remember is it wasn't it wasn't just Goosebumps. It wasn't just Fear Street. There was a million spinoffs of of both of these series. Uh, for Goosebumps, I think they did Goosebumps two thousand, and then they did like a short stories version of Goosebumps, and then with Fear Street. They ended up having a uh, a, a spinoff series called Ghosts of Fear Street that was specifically oh, made yeah. for a younger audience, which is weird because Ghosts of Fear Street was being published concurrently, you know, like peak Goosebumps popularity in the 90s. Well, you might say it's weird, but I, it was my only. I, I don't think I've ever read a single Fear Street book, but I definitely had some of these Ghosts of Fear Street. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's just weird to me because it's the same author, like kind of cannibalizing his own audience, I would think. But what what do I know? These Fear Street books sold like eighty million copies as of two thousand three. So I I don't know fucking shit. <laughs> At some point, ABC gets the television rights. They option the TV rights to the Fear Street name and saga. Okay, uh, there is a pilot that is produced for a 
show called Ghosts of Fear Street. Um, this was not really available anywhere for a long time. Like it wasn't on IMDb. It wasn't like you couldn't really dig it up. It wasn't around. Um, I went looking for it recently because I remember looking for it years ago and not being able to find it. Uh, I found it. Someone a month ago put it on YouTube in its entirety with the commercials removed, which is beautiful. So I'll post a link to that in the description of the podcast in case you want to watch it. Uh, I will tell you, though, it's absolute shit. Um, <laughs> it's 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 really goofy and campy. It's it's not really a horror thing. It does open in a wonderful way, which is this absolutely silly fucking song. And then some 1997 Nintendo 64 looking fucking CGI skeleton just dancing, dancing around. That's the that's the whole intro to Ghost of Fear Street. So is this in the same like age bracket as the Goosebumps show or is this? Yes. Okay. hundred percent. This is, this is for children. Uh, it is very strange. I, you know, kind of the goofy in the sense of like Munster's Adams family, like, Whoa, this wacky town. Or if you want an, another nineties analog from around the same time period, if you remember the show eerie Indiana, um, Oh yeah. It is in the vein of that essentially this this family uh the father's a a horror book writer ha 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 and they go to and they, they the the father met the mother because they both lived on fear street and shady side and uh they go to visit grandpa they have a couple kids and grandpa owns a bed and breakfast that's uh, spooky and weird and there's little skeletons everywhere and there's an invisible dog and all this fun shit and then the kids you know run off to play and they go to someone's house and it's this weird girl obsessed with bugs and wouldn't you know it her dad is actually like a giant human fly uh, but not in a scary way he's actually a nice guy and he was best friends with the dad growing up and we all have a big laugh well, this sounds, this sounds startlingly like that fucking uh, Maniac Mansion TV series as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Same I think there's a human thing. fly in that. Mm-hmm. So just, just goofball shit. Now, is it the worst children's program I've ever seen? No. I, I'm kind of surprised that it, it did so poorly, but I guess they put it in some primo time slot for this pilot, and it completely ate shit so they just decided not to not to go through with it so the pilot's not picked up around this same time we get the genesis of what eventually would become the three movies that we watched this past week so in 1997 hollywood pictures announces that they're developing a quote scream like movie based on fear street um a little bit later, Fear Street goes on hiatus in 1999, stops producing the books. And again in 2005, this Hollywood Pictures movie, it never goes to production. It's just kind of not there, gone. In 2014, R.L. Stein tweets out that he wants to make more Fear Street books, but publishers <laughs> aren't interested. Uh, because uh, teen literature now, you know, YA uh, has changed, which I, you know, I would agree with Mr. R.L. Stein. And that's because YA books are no longer read by children. Uh, they're, they're read by 27-year-olds who, like, buy one edible and a copy of Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and then start telling people they're a witch. Um, <laughs> because of this tweet, St. Martin's Press, uh, they actually see the tweet and they're like, oh, we'd like to publish your books. It's this big, haha, you know, the coming together of author and publisher. They publish three more Fear Street books. Uh, Harper Collins also puts out a few more later around 2018. Now, while this is going on, 20th Century Fox around 2014, 2015 decides that they're going to option Fear Street. So this is the second time it's been picked up for a, a movie option and start developing it for uh, a film or film series. It sits in development hell for four years, and people assume that this project is completely dead. But oh no! Oh no, dear listener. It's picked up again, and uh, our, our intrepid director, um, Lee Janik, is that is that how you pronounce their name? I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they they decide to take the reins 
and and make sure that this gets made. So a real real Fear Street head here. And so the the movie actually gets made. In 2019, they shot the entire trilogy, all three movies, back to back to back. And they're sitting on these three films, 20th Century Fox, and then there's the sale of 20th Century Fox. And Fear Street was very high on the list of, like, shit that's going to get buried because who gives a fuck? But then Netflix buys it. And they announce that they're going to release it. And here we are today. So somehow... From 1997 to 2015 to 2021, we have finally gotten to Fear Street. And so, Jake Trapila, I ask, was it worth the wait? Oh, man, I couldn't wait to uh, stop holding my breath, you know? It's just uh, <laughs> such an exciting ordeal we went through. Yeah, I would actually rather hold my breath for 20 years than watch <laughs> these again. Yeah, this, this, I mean, we thought Candyman was bad. Oh boy, this trilogy just—it just—it got to a point where like I was not taking in any new information. I was just watching the images; they were just—it was just going over me like a bunch of waves. And I was just like, "Okay, I did it. I've I've finished the runtime of these. I don't know if I have anything to say. They're just terrible. This is just—it just feels like it feels like something that Netflix commissioned because it's got this very. Stranger Things e aesthetic and vibe and all these oh god the needle drops but yeah this is mm -hmm. uh yeah this is just really embarrassing to be to to say the least yeah I now the one thing that it has going on that's a little bit interesting is it has a very bizarre structure and uh, I was I was yeah. kind of hoping that this would relitigate the whole you, you know Twin Peaks the Return is it a TV show or is it a movie. I was hoping they do that again, but this time, instead of film Twitter people yelling at each other, it could be like dudes who have the complete collection of Stranger Things Funko Pops, and <laughs> they're just they're just yelling about whether or not this is a movie or a TV series. So these movies are each are, are they movies? They're each two hours long. They're fucking eternal. They just go yeah. on forever. Uh, they each more or less take place in a single time period, 1994, 1978, uh, 1666. Well, the third one's a bit of a stretch, right? I'd say that yeah, thing is split right in Yeah, but that's, that's where the titles come from. And all of these stories and generational things are, are, uh, are interconnected. You know, it's, it's, it's like uh, a, a time travel in 21 grams, right, Myros? Uh, sure. I, I, I vividly recall what the fuck you're talking about with 21 grams. No, it's <laughs> everything's connected. Uh, so what we get is basically these three kind of segmented movies that, that they kind of tie together with a little bit of connective tissue, but I can't help but think that these don't function well as movies. And certainly not as, as a serialized TV show because everything is so fucking long. And I cannot figure out for the life of me why this isn't like one, two, even three movies where these time periods are sort of interwoven freely more often instead of being segmented as much as they are. Or an actual, say, I, I don't know, six, 10 episode TV series where you can break this up a little bit more. I mean, and that's what it, it functions as. Like it doesn't, if, if, if there were a Twitter debate about whether this is film or television, it doesn't read like film at all. It's almost astonishing how much it, it feels like, like I had to convince Jake, this was not in fact a, a Netflix produced original thing. Cause that, I mean, I would not have suggested it if it had been because I think we've all had our fill of what Netflix is peddling these days, but I, I knew mm -hmm. it was a, a dump. Like it was, it was an independent project that found its way to Netflix and thereby I no. was kind of interested in it. But I, what would this even look like in, in the theaters? Like what would be the release strategy? What the fuck is this as a theatrical release of three films? Like how, yeah. how could it exist? What would it be? I have no idea because it it absolutely feels like 
the chilling adventures of Sabrina or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of the, uh, or like, you know, it's got a real Riverdale, but shitty <laughs> or Sabrina, but shitty. Enter like name any CW show that you like mildly respect and then add butt shitty at the end of it or because it, it features a handful of of these like killer monsters that can't be stopped. And even when you kill them, they sort of like reform and chase you again. Uh, so I, I dubbed this, the series shit follows. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't yeah. know if that's going to stick. That's um, I, I, trademarked now. I've, I've trademarked it. Anyways, um, this is actually, this is based on somehow this is, this is a real story that they were like, yes, this is, we need to adapt this. This is, this is exactly what the world needs right now. Uh, this is based on the fear street saga, which was a spinoff of fear street, uh, that went into the lore of the town and why it is the way it is. And basically there are two towns shady side where all the bad boys live and sunnydale where all the rich kids live and in shady side they say that everyone's cursed and you know you can you can never truly leave because there's a witch and the witch put a curse on shady side um so bad things happen and part of those bad things include, well, you know, every once in a while, a, a serial killer just pops up and just murders the shit out of everyone. And that's where this kind of generational stuff comes in. The structure of these three movies is each one kind of represents a, a different segment, sort of, sort of a different one of the killers. Um, it, it's, <laughs> it's really fucking stupid, too, because you would think that a movie that ties itself just overtly to a time period. The first movie is called Fear Street, colon, 1994. Okay, so what this obviously is going to evoke this time period. I feel like I should be able to watch it and know that right off the bat, and I fucking don't. And the only way that I know it's the 90s, I guess, is because never in the history of television or cinema have there been more fucking needle drops in a piece yeah. of media. Yeah, there's ever. this early scene where they're like walking through the high school hall that is, it, it's pretty legendary, I, I would say. I, I don't even know how you could squeeze, like, it, it feels like potentially 10 needle drops in like a 30-second shot of someone walking down a hallway. It's yeah. astonishing. It's it's aggressive as fuck. I'm wondering if these needle drops are a Netflix edition. Um, I'm guessing they used some money. They got it maybe kind of recut a little bit around the music, but they just piled on song after song to try to trick you into thinking, hey, remember this from this time? You might enjoy this. Yeah. Now it's time for Nirvana. There's, there's a lot of that shit. Like, yeah. Same with like the wraparound stuff. I'm like, I wonder, did this get filmed later? Like, did they just mm -hmm. Netflixify this whole thing or because, I mean, it does have that sort of arc of a CW series, except not like a season of a CW series. This thing to me has the arc of like an entire seven season run of a CW series where where you're watching the first one. And you're like, OK, this is this is pretty dumb. But I'm having a little fun with it, you know. It's doing like the Kevin Williamson thing. It, it, it it's kind of just like baby's first scream, and I'm like, okay, whatever. See, it, I, it's it's I don't fun know. enough. I didn't get I as much as I thought I would get scream from that. Nothing about this said 1994 as a time period, or as this is like a some sort of retro pastiche homage to that period of horror. Like I'm, I'm not getting any scream from this. I'm not seeing the self-awareness. The only point in this where I'm like, ha ha, I get it. Scream is in the opening, you know, you're set up with this girl who you think is going to be your main character. And then she's killed within the first five, 10 minutes. And then even when she's stabbed, it does the, um, like that slow motion from behind grab and stab from the, the opening scene with Drew Barrymore in, in the original yep. scream. Yeah. It does that. And it's but using like the mall that, gates instead of like the garage door thing, you know? Yeah. But like, you, I'm not getting 
it, it's it it does mimicry, but mimicry is not an homage. It's it's not evoking anything. It's not taking what makes that thing good and and presenting it in a, in a different way or even a competent way. It's just mimicry, and it's it's just you know, oh look look at this. We're in a mall, and Nirvana just played. So the year is nineteen ninety four. Okay. Oh yeah, I remember Cowboy Junkies. No, actually, I kind of forgot about them. I wish you wouldn't have played that. Uh, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't have any sense of place or time, or or fun or nostalgia. Like, what about this? Is nineteen ninety four? Nobody has a cell phone, and the mall is popular. I don't. Like, what? I, I I don't even remember which uh, movie this is in. I, oh, it's in the third one, but it takes place in 1994, where for some reason at the end, there's like a new love interest for, for the kid whose love interest was butchered in the first film. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and she shows up when they're like fucking talking about disc man bullshit for some reason. And she's like, what you really need in there is an SSD. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? 1994. You need a solid state drive for you. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. What do you work at? Fucking NASA? You, there's no. <laughs> <laughs> that shit isn't there. Yeah. That was. There's. There's a lot of a chat lot of room shit too. Shit. A, lot, a whole lot of yeah. chat room shit. That, that's not 1994. Oh Who are we kidding? AOL I, I lived in 1994. Like... We were not fucking doing chat room no. in 1994. Dark ages, man. Yeah. Fucking dark ages. I, yeah, I don't even know. Like, I guess this kid is set up as some kind of super nerd, but they have to just, you know, once every two hours, they have to scream that in your face so you don't forget because it has nothing to do with who he is as a character, really. Um, it's, it's fucking dire. I, I don't, it, it just, it doesn't, doesn't feel like this part of the movie was fleshed out at all, which is insane because it's in the title. Like, it's, it's an integral cog in the big, dumb Fear Street machine, and nobody cares about time and place and, and, or anything, really. And even, even like, the, the color palette, so this is the other thing that the movie likes to tote that it does, which is um, each film has its own color palette. For 1994, it's uh, your standard bisexual lighting of, you know, like a deep neon blue and neon magenta uh, for the next movie, it's kind of like, you know, reds and oranges and yellow because it takes place as a summer camp. And then the final movie, I don't know, it's like green and black because you can't see shit. Um, yeah, you sure can't. <laughs> but it, the 1994 one cracks me up because what about that neon purple and blue lighting that is just like Argento levels of like just blasting in your fucking face? What about that is supposed to evoke that period? And again, the answer is it doesn't. It, what this does is it just uses 1994 as kind of a base template for a certain type of nostalgia, that, that kind of like Stranger Things-ism. And it takes the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, and it just compresses it into this amorphous blob of nothingness that just yeah. exists in the past. It's fucking trash. See, I, I got to tell you, I was okay with it at this point. You want to apply that trash to like this sort of trashy, like super teeny bopper. Oh, unkillable monsters are chasing us through a mall. I'm fine with that. I'm on board. It's when we move on that things turn into like a season seven uh, CW show where you're like, oh god, they ran out of ideas five seasons ago, and this thing is trundling onward, and it's just, <laughs> it's insufferable. So I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm offended by the, uh, the aesthetic choices this series makes. Uh, like 1994, aside from the songs, which I think are only there to help get you there, nothing about it looks like 1994. I grew up in the 90s. Okay, the, these kids should be wearing tie dye. And like baggy jeans and oversized T-shirts. Yeah, not like a that's single not, pair of Jenkos to be found. There, that's like the problem with Stranger Things is that everything is just in this like oh this idealistic day glow eighties where everything was bright and col- colorful. It's like no, everything was was wood paneled and brown and shit stained, and it doesn't look anything like what this what this Netflix makes it look out to be. Yeah, it's I I, I don't understand. It's baffling. It's baffling. And then even when you get into the second movie, so now now we're supposed to be in the 1970s, and yeah. 
there are points where I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be, you know, Friday the 13th or uh, maybe the burning or something. And this, that's going to be kind of the, the, the point that it, it draws from. And it doesn't even really do that. There's these weird kind of like flashback sequences because whenever you touch witchy things, like you get flashbacks to the, the prior murders, that's part of the witch power. And there is a flashback to a scene that looks like it was ripped from Friday the 13th where this killer is is drowning someone in a lake. Uh, but we never actually see that. It's just kind of, we're just given like little glimpses of it. The burning, this fucking movie wishes it was the burning. It wishes it had fucking Jason Alexander putzing around. <laughs> it does not. I, I'm not you. even that big of a, a burning stan, but it, it's certainly a much better movie than this. Uh... Do you see this was was meant to be directed by Alex Ross Perry for some reason? Oh, I yeah, did not this, see that. Uh, the second film was was supposed to be. I, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah, I mean it, it's equally bizarre if you consider uh, this this Lee Janik's previous uh, indie horror cred that, that uh, this honeymoon movie, which is had kind of a longer life uh, and it is certainly about the polar opposite tonally from what we're seeing in these fear street things, which, which fine and well explore it. Maybe you've got some passion for this, this subject matter from your youth, but uh, mm-hmm. man, something goes real wrong uh, around the time we hit 1978. For me, there's, there's zero fun left in the thing. It's just like a corpse. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the thing is with 1978 is, at the end of 1994, you kind of you you kind of get the whole gist of what's going on, and that's you know in 1978 there was a similar situation where a kid just went crazy, killed a bunch of shady siders, and we are told up front at the end of 1994 and in the the recap at the beginning of 1978 because each one starts out like it's a you know, an episode of TV and you got to get your little recap in um, that everyone dies at this camp, except for a key plot point, this one girl who dies, but is, you know, through the power of CPR, her knife wounds are magically healed. Yeah. Don't ask me. Also, that's not even true. They said like a, a giant busload of kids away from the fucking camp. Well, you know. Yeah. But, but those, those were the, the, you're right. You're right. But like, I think, I think the, uh, implication there is they were mostly like the the sunnydale rich kids sure sure couldn't we have just killed the the bus or something like have that bus explode or something give me a something. more carnage yeah. out of kill this kill everybody thing. Yeah. yeah it's already dumb just make it bloodier <laughs> yeah well because that's the thing is we know going into this i know exactly how this is and it starts at the ending and so the the joy is sort of like the journey to get there and i'm fine with that but the journey's fucking awful. Yes. I'd rather see 35 small children get butchered than these two idiots uh, scrambling <laughs> through a fucking septic tank for fucking an hour. It's like, yeah. Oh God. What are we doing? And because the movie is obsessed with this, this whole world-building, you know, MCU-inspired broader storytelling where, uh, you know, it, it simultaneously has to be a movie... It, it, like in the present in, in well in its present and then address the future and also explain the past so that all these actions and everything that we're heading towards makes sense and it's this whole transitional thing so what en- ends up happening is not only is this a shitty slasher not only is it a slasher that it doesn't have any gore or excitement i mean it's got gore but not not to the degree that it needs to really, you know, set my fucking soul on fire here, but it, it, it just sort of stops dead in its tracks, slams on the fucking brakes, and they go, okay, time for exposition, and then they talk to us about witchy things for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Things just completely slow to a halt. There's no momentum at all. Any, anytime this movie starts to pick up just a little bit of steam, stops dead in its fucking tracks, just so we can get exposition that'll help set up the next movie. And fuck that. It's it's stupid. Oddly enough, this is the only movie with uh with sex in it. Uh there's like two sex scenes in here, because how can you have your, you know, your teen summer camp slasher without sex? 
and it still feels like the most sexless fucking slasher I have ever seen in my entire life. It's so flat and lifeless. And, you know, I, I don't want to dwell too much on who is this for, but really, like, it, it, it's trying to be a trashy summer camp early slasher from the 70s or 80s, which it fails at miserably. So it's a bad homage. But everything else about the movie screams like this is for, you know, contemporary audiences. This is for like 16-year-olds probably. And I, I firmly believe that, one, children deserve their own trash, okay? We don't have to recycle our trash for the children. Let them have yeah. their own fucking trash, okay? And second of all, like, this... It's just bizarre because it, it plays out like a children's television show. And then you get these bursts of ultraviolence, which aren't that great, but also kind of, you know, keep this from being appealing to a 12-year-old, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it, there's all these different things going on that, that feel, it makes the whole thing feel like oil and water. Nothing is blending here. Nothing is making sense. It's just a big cornucopia of shit. It's me taking a dump on the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, the writing level is really bizarrely pitched because it is, these are very violent films. But, and again, I, I feel like maybe there was some intent to pitch it this direction as like some sort of R.L. Stein yeah, homage type thing. But I, I it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it's like trying to watch a fuck or read an R.L. Stein book when you're 30. That, no, thank you. But, yeah, I was I, like the first thing that came to mind for me was like, you know, Nickelodeon obviously had like their Are You Afraid of the Dark sort of stuff. But th this isn't even that. It's like when they would run like a, a weird TV movie in like 1996 or something that was like a, a Halloween in spooky town. Like that's what these feel like. <laughs> Except they're just soaked in blood for some reason. It's just. It, it, it's bizarre stuff. I, I don't know, but I, and they also all have this fucking need to have emotional connection to everything. Everyone's fucking constantly monologuing about their fucking feelings. And it's just like, shut the fuck up and make a horror movie for God's sake. Yeah. No, yeah. I gotta, I gotta talk about how, Oh, I gotta sell pills to pay for <laughs> college just uh, not a good sister or a good girlfriend or a good friend it's like a shot up why don't you make something happen on the screen that informs this and, and fucking tells us something about your character rather than just endlessly spewing fucking bullshit this is what i do i that's that's how i get people to like me more <laughs> is i i walk up to them and i scream i'm sympathetic directly <laughs> into their face yeah i mean the only value I could see these films having, and I, I use that term mildly, is that I think, I think, I honestly think children should be exposed to horror movies sooner in life. You know, it's, I, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween when I was 11. I, I turned out fine. But I think you should expose children to horror movies soon. I think it's, you know, it's important to build them up to the heavier stuff, of course. But I think this could be as an this could have been a good opportunity for gateway horror because anyone has access to their parents' Netflix account, and if they're you know if it's late one summer night and they're they decide to put these on, maybe they'll see some you know some gore and stuff that you know they've never seen before. But like these are even by those standards, they're very tame. Like again, we, there's no nudity of really any kind. There's like maybe three or four f words or fuck words throughout the whole thing, and yeah, the gore is just these like goopy cg like splattery effects but they're all it's all kind of rendered dull through this muted color palette um but yeah i think uh kids should be exposed to horror but also kids these days deserve better than this yeah man mm -hmm. if i were 11 and trying to watch this i'd be bored out of my goddamn mind like it's just the, the thing about like watching horror when you are younger is you see these things that you might not even understand that kind of stick with you and, and they make you want to like revisit it later and, and you're like what was going on in that and it, 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 you would get none of that sort of feeling from 
from these films. You're like, I yeah, know exactly no. what's going on with that because I watched fucking Supergirl on the CW last week and it's the same goddamn thing. <laughs> Except this time Lex Luthor has a knife, I guess. I don't... The, also, this so this is also just a current trend is that everything needs to have a universe that explains every character and every secondary character and where everything comes from. You know, the the Mar the just to throw Marvel under the bus again, it's the Marvel Cinematic User Universe doesn't stop there. Now we have these TV shows on Disney Plus that explain where all of these tertiary characters went in the background. And that's that's the feeling I get from these the Fear Street movies is that we have to go back in time and we have to find out why did this one person survive? Then we have to go back 300 more years and find out why this curse is happening. Horror movies of the 70s didn't need to do that. They just existed as they were and they were great. And but now everything needs a, like a purpose to exist. Otherwise, the audience won't buy into it. But the films yeah. suffer as a result because I don't get invested one whit in these films. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's like they're they're not just universes, but it's like films are constructed as essentially like wikis, right? Like everything needs an explanation. Everything, every single character needs to be, you know. Uh, explored fully and quite frankly i don't give a fuck about any of these people and perhaps consider for a moment that not telling me shit and letting me just mull over things in my own fucking head is is possibly a better direction yeah i mean you could consider this as like a like what if this were a fulci movie or something like hey he would have made all three of these into like a 90 minute movie and you could you could still have your like MacGuffin, we got to solve this. Uh, there would just be like a fucking twenty-minute uh, snippet duct taped onto the end where they're fucking using this hand and try to bring it to a corpse. In the end, uh, that's all we need, really. I mean, you know, you could you could get your resolution. Uh, it doesn't have to be explained why we need to get the hand to the corpse. We just do. That's that's just what we need to do. Uh, it could be fun, but, and even if you just stuck with the structure of the first film and you've got this sort of ending where, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's goes nihilistic for whatever reason, which is, is purposeless when you're just going to follow it up with like a way that we can conquer the nihilism. But nonetheless, if it just ended with her girlfriend getting possessed and stabbing her, I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. We're on to something, but no. No, it's immediately like, oh, well, let's travel through time and solve the mystery. It's like, God damn it. I, it's exhausting. Yeah, Just I don't, tie, I don't want to Tie her up with the phone cord and uh, go back. <sighs> Classic move. <laughs> uh, well, and it doesn't help either that I feel like, I mean, I, I hated all these, don't get me wrong, but they kind of get progressively worse as, as you move along. Because by the time we get to the last one, like, well, we're going back to 1666. So what does that mean? Means all of our characters are now playing old timey characters. And you know, if you are in a hacky old timey movie, what do you got to have? That's right. Bad, shitty, old English accent. And do they ever? Oh my God. I, it's really great. It's like the worst community theater play version of The Crucible that you've ever seen in your entire life. Right, yeah. When your high school uh, drama club was putting on the fucking Crucible, I'm guessing you didn't go because you don't want to watch this shit. But here it is. And there's no reason why I even had the same cast. Why do we even need these fucking TD boppers in there? You could have just had different people to do your fucking Crucible. But I guess then you would have had to pay different people. Mm, that's true. That's yeah. true. We don't want that. Uh, plus, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring back all those beloved characters that we already killed off. How else are we going to see them? It's so see good. The, the third film is, is the nadir by a long shot. And I don't like the second one at all. I mean, I think the first one is fine for what it is. If it weren't attached to this, like a stupid goddamn Netflix hybrid TV movie thing, I think I'd be fine with it. But, uh, yeah, the third one, it it's totally, it, it's like it loses any pretense of being a movie at all. Like half of it mm -hmm. is just the Crucible, and then half of it is a sequel to the first film. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. what are we even fucking doing here? And all the Crucible shit is just like, 
who could pay attention to it? Who on earth could pay attention to this thing? It is yeah. it is impossible mm. to watch. Yeah. So everything. Yeah. Uh, I was just regarding the third one. Like this, like the most devastating thing happened to me that, that I have not experienced in a long time. It's in the third one. So the the whole all these murders are we believe to be the curse of this witch named Sarah Fear. Fear is spelled <laughs> F I E R. But in the third film. Like the whole origin story comes to a head where she's fighting a guy in this cave. It's like the her ritual Satan cave or whatever. And the guy is a descent. He's like one of the ancestors of this cop in the first film who we think is a hero. But it turns out his family's bloodline is actually the evil one. And she loses her hand and there's this whole scuffle. And then like I was just, you know, I, I watched two and three back to back. So I was just pretty much numb. And then I, you know, I paused the film to get up and I thought, oh, I'm, I must be almost done with this. I paused it. I had 57 minutes to go after this sequence. And then we jump back to 1994 so that we can have like they re basically repeat the ending of 1994 in the third film where they gather all of these undead killers to one location and then with they try they f like fake them out with the with the blood trick and and yeah it, it just it repeats itself but this time the blood's like fucking neon for some reason yeah it's i guess yeah i stopped yeah, paying attention they, i wasn't sure why they had plant. fucking day glow uh blood in the super well, soakers i was like well i guess that's what's happening now <laughs> yeah is they shut the lights off and they they add neon day glow to the blood's collection and then they squirt it all over the place so it looks like a real jizz party in this mall mm -hmm. I, I i do like that you know the the main cop in this movie his his name is officer good and uh <laughs> let me tell you turns out he's bad sarah fear <laughs> and officer good yeah sarah fear not actually scary officer good Bad Actually, bad. <laughs> I mean, I guess it, it, good works as like a pilgrim name, right? Uh, that's a thing. Yeah, goody Classic good. Classic crucible name. Yeah. Goody good. Everybody. Yeah. I was always a titubic guy myself, but you know. <laughs> How is there no fucking tituba in this movie? Ah, uh, that's a shame. Uh. <laughs> that's something I say with uh, every single movie I watch. That's. <laughs> That's my that's my new letterbox gimmick. I'm just gonna where's Tituba? Uh anyways. <laughs> this is it, it, all these movies look like shit too. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. But the third, the third one, one really one looks, looks like, like shit. <laughs> and it's funny because the first one they're like, oh, it's gonna look like the 90s, but actually it's just like this weird, like Netflix flicks gloss version of fake nostalgia. And the 70s one is, you know, it's oh, I got this bright color palette and you know maybe if you squint it looks like a 70s movie but not really because it's netflix a and then you get to 1666 and they're like oh shit what are we gonna do they didn't have movies then <laughs> and so you think you think you're like oh are they gonna do it like the witch or something or are they gonna evoke like 1970s folk horror or something cool like that no they don't do that um it basically, it looks like ass, and then there's these weird, like, handheld sequences, and I'm like, are they trying to do a little Terrence Malick here? Just, just a little, little, little dose of the of the new world. We get a little new world right now. And wouldn't you know, I looked into it, and I I read way too many interviews with the director, and finally, finally, I find one. And yes, wouldn't you know. That was his inspiration for the third Fear her. Street movie. Is her? her. Sorry, <laughs> I mean Lee. It confusing. It could go anywhere. It could go either direction. Her her inspiration for the third Fear Street movie was uh, Terrence Malick's The New World, <laughs> which I knew Jake would like because that's that's a Jake Trapila classic. So ah uh, yeah, she's sitting. I, I don't know. I, it feels like they just didn't have a lighting budget or something. I I I was like very passively watching this because it's just so unengaging at this point. Uh, and I'm like, all right, well, I'll just do a few. I'll do some dishes while I'm watching this and blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, it's awful dark in here. I'm just gonna 
pop open the blinds and the entire movie just disappeared. I was like, oh, great. Yeah. That's just a black <laughs> yeah. screen I'm looking at. <laughs> oh, like a solid third of this movie, you just can't see shit. It's like, yeah. unless you're in a pitch black room, even then, <laughs> it's uh, it's truly awful. And we, we mentioned the climax a little bit, but you got to understand that their whole idea for stopping these unstoppable monsters, it's this like, deranged home alone-esque plot involving putting a day glow paint and blood into super soakers and then also writing like officer good as a butthead in paint to try and lure him in uh, by doing graffiti and uh, then they the other part is they get a, a guy who's in the first movie for like five minutes and he's He's this black guy who is accused of, of like tagging stuff or something like that. And so real low level criminal shit. And they just pull up to his house on their way to the mall and they go, Hey, you want to murder a cop? And he goes, yeah, let's do it. And then he becomes like their ride or die pal for life. And this is someone who, as far as my estimation goes, has no investment in anything that's going on. Um, it's, it's asinine. There's a whole sequence where a kid gives like a, a motivational speech where he uses the uh, the Konami code as, as like a, a device to express. Oh, oh, I almost forgot to mention that. God damn it. That was some fucking great A shit. Yeah. So it's it's really, it really is. It's like, he just goes, hey, sis, up, up, down, down, left, right, PA, start. She's like, wow, nerd droid, what does that mean? And he goes, it means it's, it's the Konami code. You get 30 extra lives, and we're going to need them tonight because things could get bad. Shut the fuck up. Who the fuck wrote that? Yeah, one of the worst pieces wanna... of writing I, I could ever recall. I, that, that is mm-hmm. like an all-time embarrassingly shit monologue. Yeah. I uh, Just embarrassing shit. All these children should be drowned in a mall fountain. I, this is horrible, horrible garbage. And yet, somehow, and Jake, I'm going to need you to explain this to me. Oh, no. We are in the minority, my friend. We are, we are the, uh, you know, the grumpy Gusses around here. <laughs> because, wouldn't you believe that all three of these films are critically fucking acclaimed? Like, 100% consensus, everybody loves these. Well, here's the thing, everybody. Steve. Uh, I mean, we'll kick the Jake, certainly. But I was, I was looking into this a little more on the old, uh, the old tomato meter. And it seems like some of these critics are a little confused as to whether this is TV or movies, too. Because uh, there's a lot of repeat reviews on these that are just kind of like broad overviews of Fear Street as a whole. Like, rather than actually big reviews for the individual films. Yeah. There, there's a lot of that, and then they all kind of read the same too. Seriously, pick like five random positive reviews of any of the Fear Street movies, and you'll see the patterns emerge. And they feel very like I watched it. I didn't have a uh, like knee jerk negative reaction, and I enjoyed the talking points in the in the PR package and press release that was sent to me. It's just it it all feels lazy. Like it doesn't feel like anybody's really engaging with this stuff. Uh, and also, I'm going to get all you know weird about it because, again, this shit is fucking abysmal by no conceivable measure that I could possibly think of. Is this shit even fucking mediocre? This sucks. Big prolapsed anus. It is horrible. Fucking horrible. Total waste of time. I, 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 this is for no one. At, and yet here we are. What what do, what do they see in this, Jake? What's going on? I uh, it's it's beyond me, Steve. I I cannot fathom. My only reasonable explanation is that this was well received by people who do not regularly watch horror movies. Uh, you know, you, Myros, and I, we we mainline the stuff. But I think you know they don't go out of their way to watch horror movies. Uh, I, I, you know, or just a lack of familiarity with the genre, what have you. I that that can be the only logical explanation. And I think if they see sarcastic kids 
try to be active to defeat a threat maybe they think oh i enjoyed stranger things this is kind of like that it's just a horror movie this is fun this is smart i'm having a good time i don't know it 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 does not read to me that way this is it's very it's very condescending and i'm at a loss i'm 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 truly at a loss here because i guess i guess you could call me a professional critic i'm published on rotten tomatoes whatever uh but i i i don't know what they see in this this is i'm looking at fear street part 3 1666 is sitting at 89 percent with 94 reviews most of them positive Mm -hmm. and the audience score is not that far behind but i i just i'm shocked i'm gonna i'm gonna need you to to hop in that in that film inquiry or film inquiry uh, group chat, because I believe one of your, one of your critic pals gave it a positive review. You got to you got to figure this out. Oh no, this up. we got to cut some people. Um, just, just, <laughs> just aggressively come out of how fucking dare you? <laughs> I I uh, yeah it's 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 odd um, i don't even have a measurement from my usual like you know beacons of light where's where's the armand review there is none well because yeah. it's a fucking tv show armand probably yeah. wisely was like i'm not gonna watch any more netflix shit because it's a fucking trash yeah. fire because armand white has fucking dignity at the end of the day he's got That's dignity. the other thing is that a lot of these critics i don't recognize these people like the first name just going through a list that jumped out to me is A.A. A. Dowd at the A.V. Club. He gave it a C, he gave the third film a C plus, but that still is reading as positive on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's a glowing review. I see, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I sound, I might sound like some tinfoil hat, like uh, fucking Snyder cut asshole or something, but I, I don't understand. Like, it feels like there's a lot of payola that, that goes on with these Netflix things, because... They're all shit. Like, the Netflix yeah. hasn't produced anything worthwhile in ages, outside of, like, bankrolling Scorsese to make things once in a while. But as far as, like, yeah. serial content, it's fucking dreadful. Always. And it all looks the same. Like, we could shit yeah. on Marvel all we want, but god damn, give me one of those things over what Netflix has been doing for the last five years. It's a fucking nightmare factory. Like... Yeah, I expected because, the, like I said, the only reason I had any interest in this is because it was, it was not a Netflix production. It was, it was obviously something they bought post production. Uh, and having watched it now, I'd say they got their fingers right in the damn thing and and messed it up substantially further than it already was. But um, if you look, what I was expecting was maybe something along the lines of of our guy Jeff Wadlow. Like you know, maybe we'd get some truth or dare gold going on here. Which you look at a movie like that, which is a trashy, dumb teen horror uh, with some joy in it, and it'll be like fucking 15% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. And you get something factory farm garbage like this, and it's like 90%. Oh boy, what are the movies of the year, I guess? Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and honestly, I, I think a big part of it is is just kind of identifying the things that that scratch certain itches um both for you know people at large as well as critics and they figure you know what as if this functions a certain way and it looks a certain way and it has a certain tone to it they know that like you know what the the worst someone can say is oh it was fine and they've mastered this with their netflix original documentaries you can throw on any single Netflix documentary produced by Netflix documentary right now. And it's like, it, it, they're basically directed by computers. It's just, it, it's the same fucking beats. It's the same pacing, same look. Everything is the same. You know, it's going to go, it's never going to go as deep as you want it to. Um, it's just going to be this top level, vaguely interesting subject matter that you go, huh? And then it's done and you forget about it immediately, but you don't always just like outwardly hate it. Great example is the uh, the Walter Mercado documentary. Okay. It's like Netflix has discovered the Mendoza line of cinema. Okay. Which is if you, if you don't watch baseball, it's basically like 
you you have to achieve this batting average, isn't it? Like it's, it's like two eleven, two hundred, two hundred. Yeah. And that's the Mendoza line. And if you're going to be a professional baseball player, you have to hit that or you're going to wash out of the league. And Netflix has figured that out for cinema. And it's just, this is exactly what we need to do to not take any risk and to, in a very calculated way, make something that people can just consume and forget about, but not hate. Yeah, and here we are. It's like the opposite of it's the opposite of uh, Prime, which we give a lot of grief to, especially on caustic content for the fact that they will just be a repository for any anyone's trash that they care to toss into it. Which God bless that. I mean, I think Netflix might be like my least favorite studio content producer. Anything like I think it is a void. I think it is a huge. Uh, is this a harbinger of doom for the industry to be? I, I can't stand it. And I can't, yeah. I also can't cancel it because uh, my parents use my account and, and they need their fucking nightly <laughs> vanilla paste. So I just can't get rid of the fucking thing. But I hate, <laughs> hate, hate Netflix. You got to have your film silent. They, they take <laughs> promising filmmakers, they grind them up into paste and then you get to fucking eat it. <laughs> It's like it's like the the biggest necessary evil in streaming services because it was it was the first one on the scene and I remember it being great but I was just on the homepage going through the Fear Street movies the other day and I was just kind of taking like I don't browse Netflix often I w I really only use it if I need to watch something and if Just Watch says it's on Netflix I, I'm like great I'll go to that that's really all I use it for but I was looking at the homepage while I was looking for the Fear Street movies and. There is just so much crap that like has just been dumped on just in like the last week. Like they just they released a new show and like couple films every week. That is so much content and like it, it everybody if you're not watching it in the first week in its release, then you're never going to see it. It's it's right. just yeah, it's like you said, it's paste. It's just a lump of paste that they shovel on an assembly line and then we eat it out of our slop buckets. That we call the television. And it's set. it's like more and more rare that you'll even find something on, on your Just Watch or your Decider that's even on Netflix. They're not a repository yeah. for classic film at all anymore. And they they certainly used to be. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to completely shun the history of Netflix. I've seen many films I would have never had the opportunity to because of their mail service and their early streaming ventures, which were based on existing properties that were good. They had a quality library. Now they have just shit that they're shoveling out continuously. And it's, it's just, it's mm -hmm. fucking yeah. horrible. The, yeah. The best days are behind them. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Jake, what are you putting over this week? So just to praise maybe one of the best streaming services, I think HBO Max has got a lot going for it. Um, there is a great swath of like classic films that you can find on there. Um, but I'm going to recommend actually a film that uh, was released uh, not only on HBO Max, but it came out in theaters this past weekend. It's the latest film by one James Wan, who uh, started out making horror features before signing on to do a few big budgety things like Furious 7 and Aquaman and now he's taken a, he took a break between Aquaman 1 and 2 to, to bang out this little ditty. And uh, I think it might be the best film he's ever directed. Uh, it's called Malignant. And I don't want to say too much about it. Uh, really going blind as much as possible. It is uh, essentially, we, we just may have discussed in our chat, but it's a big, it's like a, a large budget remake of a beloved film that we all appreciate beloved by us from, at least. <laughs> beloved by us at least i mean this is like it's the perfect film for us but i think give malignant a chance and a lot of people really are liking where it goes uh and where it goes is is just fantastic i did not see it coming and i'm glad i gave it a chance uh it's it's a it's a really fun ride and i wish we were discussing malignant on this week's podcast and not the fear street trilogy uh but please malignant check it out all right, Marius, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I second that, by the way. I mean, we, we might be discussing it soonish uh, after we get through our October slate. We might we might have to visit this because once everyone's seen it, I, I want to discuss the thing. It's it's wild. 
Uh, but I'm going to put over uh, Psychonauts 2, which uh, recently came out for uh, your various video game platforms. Uh, it's a sequel to a, a cult classic video game from, uh, you know, around about 2003, 4 in there, the, the PS2 GameCube days. But it's a double fine Tim Schafer kind of a guy known for lucas arts adventure games from the the 90s and uh kind of hallmark wit about him uh it's a game that is simultaneously ugly and gorgeous it, it uses this sort of picasso style that uh looked like hell on on like xbox or, but now i don't know there's something they're doing with everything feels so crafted and it is certainly looks a little bit rough i mean the designs are strange and off-putting but the way they utilize lighting and texture and everything it, it's remarkable looking uh if you ask me it stands out greatly in the modern video game uh pantheon and it's also very well written and very fun to play so uh check out psychonauts 2 all right well you know we we covered Good film. We cover good video games. I'm going to give you a little good music to listen to. And uh, that is the album Disco Jazz from the artist Rupa from 1982. Is it jazz? No, absolutely not. Is it disco? In the loosest sense of the word. What is it? It's, it's fucking weird, man. It's um, kind of dancey, funky, loosely disco, definitely from, you know... Uh, 1970s early 80s sound uh, but also it has this extreme weirdness to it that almost evokes something like uh, you know like an animal collective or if you want to go backwards in time a little bit bands that would come out later like uh, or you know in, later in the 1980s like uh, Gang of Four or um, I don't know it's it's bizarre it's one of those albums where you play it and it's fun, and you're bobbing your head, and you don't know what the fuck this lady's saying because she's Indian, and you don't care, and if you play this in a room full of people, everybody's going to ask you what the fuck it is. It's weird. <laughs> Rupa, disco jazz, listen to it. You will not be disappointed. Um, the only thing you might be disappointed in is that completely inadequate description of what you're about to listen to, but don't fucking worry about that, okay? Uh, anyways, if you enjoyed the podcast, I do us a big favor and, uh, you can rate or review us on iTunes. There's a link in the description to this very podcast. Also in the description of this podcast is a link to our Patreon. Uh, we got a new Patreon episode, so you can, you can listen to that. That's the thing you can do. Also, if you contribute any amount to our Patreon, then you will, uh, you will get a free movie in the mail from me, assuming you live in the continental United States. And it could be a DVD, could be a Blu-ray, could be a box set. You don't know what the fuck you're getting. You're getting something. Something better than Fear Street, probably. I mean, maybe not, but most likely. So, there you go. Just give us a little money. We'll send you a little gift. It'll be great. I mean, if you once owned it, it had to, had to have been better than Fear Street. You would think. Yeah, There's, it, it's, it's got some value. I don't know. I mean, I, I do have a copy of, of Let My Puppets Come that's, you know, sitting around. So, wait. If you get that, it's it's kind of a toss-up. But I honestly would rather watch disgusting puppets fuck each other than watch Fear Street again. So, uh, yeah, you, you get a free movie. Give us a little cash. It helps out. Also, uh, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, you can send us whatever. We don't give a shit. And uh, you can tweet at us, too, at optimismvaccine. And we'll talk back to you. We're, we're nice. We're kind people. We're thoughtful. Uh, yeah, so I think that about wraps things up. Jake, last word's yours. And for those reasons, I'm out. 